Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-394. Today's show is about empowerment, and there has been much ballyhoo around empowerment in the past few years, and, and rightly so. To my mind, it's not about someone in charge or society or culture stepping forward and blessing you with empowerment. It's about you realizing that you have the strength and the gifts and the permission to be empowered. And just like inspired means to be filled with spirit, empowered means to be given or gifted power. And what we're going to realize is that we have the ability to give ourselves that gift. And this is a big part of how a good coach and a transition to an endurance lifestyle can transform your mindset by giving you, or more appropriately, revealing to you your own infinite power. So today we have a chat with Liz, who is a runner and a coach and a mom, and Liz and I have spent some time running the roads of Groton together, and we talk about empowerment of her runners and what she sees in her practice. In section one, I will tell my WAPAC trail race tale, and in section two, I'll talk to you about, I'll give you three guesses. That's right, empowerment. I'm ramping up my training for the Bay State Marathon in October. I have been working on my speed, and it's awful, but I'm getting the workouts done. At least the weather is turning a bit cooler now up here, so I can avoid the soupy heat and humidity. But the days are getting shorter in a hurry and that's uh, that's always a challenge this time of year. I'm doing some workouts at night in the dark, and I don't mind. I've always been a night runner. I did a trail run one night last week, and it was a beautiful, clear night, but a moonless night, really dark. But it was really pretty to be able to look up through the trees and see the stars splashed across the sky. It was really nice. And as we move into fall, you get different smells. The Concord grapes are ripening. That sweet, sour smell hits you as you run by. They are just this screaming, florid, great grape smells at you. As if to say, hey, we're still here. Your Vikings and your Colonials have come and gone, but we're still here. And I have a key tip for you. 
something I learned from the 100-mile training. When I run at night on the road, I always have worn a headlamp, and I also try to wear something reflective or a blinky light of some sort, you know, it's just so you can be seen. But in ultra running, you carry a flashlight as well. And you have to remember what generation I'm from. When I think of a flashlight, I think about those 8-inch long cylinders with multiple heavy D-cell batteries, you know, that at best gave off a wan yellow glow. You know, think of a horror movie flashlight, right? The ones that are always going out at the worst moment. When I started training overnights for the 100, I looked around my house for flashlights and discovered there was a whole new generation of cheap, bright, small LED flashlights. And companies give them away as marketing knickknacks. And they're so small and light, you can hold them between your fingers and not even notice them. And this way, you don't even have to turn your head to illuminate something. You just point the flashlight at it. And so when you're running into oncoming traffic, you can wave the, the light around in, the, in their frame of reference to make sure they see you. Uh, really good. So my friends, turn on your love light and let it shine. Let it shine, shine, shine. Let it shine. On with the show. WAPAC, 2018, an old friend. I really have grown to love the WAPAC trail race. It checks all the boxes for me. It's long enough and challenging enough to push me physically and mentally. It's deep New England topography is interesting and comforting to me. It's a small, almost intimate affair put on by my running club, and I get to see people I might see only this time each year. Challenge-wise, the Wapak is the closest thing to an ultra without being an ultra. A bit like an ultra warm-up, you might say. It's 18 miles of technical single path out and back over four mountains. It's got chin-scraping hike-ups and toenail-rending descents. It's only 18 miles, but it will take you longer than your marathon time. And at Wapak, there is also that ultra-marathon, that trail runner zeitgeist. Difficult trails with a lightly supported course. And the community bon homme of the trail runner nation, all in one nice, compact, 18-mile stretch of New England wilderness, an hour or so drive northwest of Boston. An unplanned gift. I was excited to run this year. Usually, this race is... A bit of a difficult notch in my training plan. Sometimes I'm not quite in shape for it. It's one of the strengthening steps. It takes the place of a long run in a marathon campaign in the fall. 
As a training runner, I'm typically not specifically trained for this event. And I have to do that delicate dance of going hard enough to make it a worthy effort without going so hard that I'm left out of gas by the side of the trail or limping around on shredded quads for a week or nursing a twisted ankle in the middle of a training cycle. But this year, I was on the rebound from the 100 miler. I had lots of trail work under my belt, a surfeit of trail work, hours and hours of trail work, days and days of trail work, a well of aerobic trail work so deep, you can't see the bottom. And even though I have changed gears back to road racing, I knew I had this deep buildup of aerobic conditioning and trail work to play with. And this would allow me the freedom to push some sections harder and earlier than I usually would and still be able to potentially finish strong at the end without dismembering my health or my training plans. And I was looking forward to it. My favorite trail running is when I can shut off the limiters and just run with wild abandon up and down the mountains. It's a great freedom and a great joy. And that's when I love the trails. A preview. I had run it one way with Paul, the race director, and a couple other people three weeks prior as my first real run coming off the 100. I felt fine. Losing my stomach at the 70-mile mark of the 100-miler had the silver lining of keeping me from destroying my legs in the last 30 miles, and I rebounded very quickly. We went out on this preview run at a very casual pace on a warm, rainy Saturday, sloshing through the puddles and clearing the fallen trees out of the trail where we could. And there were no views at the tops of the mountains on this test run. The rain clouds were pulled in close like thick cotton. But I felt great, and the trails were in good shape. In the rain, the F's were out on the trail. E-F-T-S, F's. And what is an eft, you say? Well, it's a newt. It's a subgroup of salamanders that are semi-aquatic, and they are actually quite spectacular. You come across them in the trail, and they're bright orange salamanders that are really a stark contrast to all the gray and brown and green in the forest. So that nine-mile, one-way practice run of the Wapak a couple weeks after the 100 was a real confidence builder. My legs felt great, like I had lots of strength, plenty to spare. I felt that deep well of aerobic fitness from the 100-mile training. I felt good. Preludes and expectations. I first ran this race in the 90s. I was training for a marathon and saw an 18-mile race and thought, hey, why not this one? As is my practice, I didn't really concern myself with the specifics of the course description or the warnings on the website, and I got out there in the mountains, unrepaired, in my in my road shoes, and I fell down a bunch and lost a toenail. Yeah, I lost a toenail. It, it was already coming off, but with the steep, slippery downhills, it came off and was floating around inside the shoe. <laughs> this was my first walk back. And all this was a novelty to me, having only recently started racing marathons and not having done much trail work. And it was a bit of an epiphany. And I instantly fell in love with trail running and the weirdness of it all. Here were a bunch of guys with B12 
beat-up gear, scraggly beards, and dogs wearing bandanas, and I really dug the laid-back vibe in contrast to the difficulty and the intensity of the actual trail and the running. And since then, I've run it a bunch of times. In 2008, I ran it in a 324. In 2010, I was in good shape. I ran it in a 332. And then I had a long hiatus with a few medical issues where I was focusing on other goals. So I finally came back to WAPAC undertrained in 2016 and ran a 411 on a hot day that literally felled me in the last mile with cramps. But that year I went on to qualify at Portland with a 337. And last year, in a bit of a driving rainstorm, I had a casual and happy 413 finish and went on to requalify with a 333 at Bay State in October. This year, with the 100-mile training, I was eyeballing being able to dip under four hours, maybe. But the big drop in my finishing times over the last decade is really due to three things. The first, I'm just not as fast anymore. So even in the places where you can break into an unencumbered run, which there's not many of them on this course, I, I don't make up much time. And second, I don't run many of the climbs anymore. I hike them. And third, I don't attack the steep technical downhills with as much abandon as I used to. It's just not worth breaking a shoulder or losing a tooth to take a couple minutes off my race time. So I, I don't really think of this as a race per se anymore, more like a fun run with friends. A difficult fun run with friends. <laughs> but I always care about how I perform, right, and how I feel as a gauge of where I am in my fitness. Race time, good time. So coming into Sunday, we expected good weather, but when the day arrived, the forecast crept a bit and we got a little heat, not a lot, mid-80s towards the end. And I know from experience that weather isn't too much of a factor on WAPAC. The course is almost completely under cover of the forest canopy. You can feel the weather, but you're never fully exposed to it. By the way, that's Buddy drinking out of his water dish in the background. I had a great day. I felt good. I was able to go out reasonably hard. I hiked the uphills with good leg strength, had good push. I danced the downhills with enthusiasm and skill. And I finished very strong, collecting four or five runners on the way back, on the back half. The race starts at 9 a.m. We get there before 7 a.m. to set up the race and park the cars. Then as we get close to the start, I grab my gear and get ready. And someone draws a line in the dirt for the starting line, and Paul makes some announcements, and then we all get going, and I jump into the mid-pack for the start. It, it starts off with a slight downhill section on a rough forest road, and I tried to stick close to Paul and the other runners around my ability, who I know from past races. You want to pace well in this first section, so you don't get stuck behind a lot of people in the conga line going up that first big climb. I wore my old slant pack and carried two bottles. One was water. The other was half-strength perpetuum that I had laying around. I also carried a flask of hammer gel, which I put down and forgot at the first five-mile aid station and never remembered to pick up. 
So I had a problem with the bottle holder in my pack. For some reason, the bottle kept jumping out and dropping into the trail. And I don't know if it was because I was working harder that caused too much jiggling or if it didn't have, you know, the belt wasn't tight enough. But I had just run 100 miles with this same pack without any problems. So I just gave up and carried a bottle in each hand. I had my Droid and my Jaybird Run headphones in the pack for the turnaround because on the way back, I'm typically running alone and I'm focused on closing the race so I can put some music on. And I was sweating hard and feeling winded in that first climb, so I let my pack go. You have to run your own race in these long, long ones. There's no sense getting sucked into somebody else's rhythm. You have to listen to your body. And I felt like I was working too hard to sustain it for another three-plus hours, so I backed off a little bit in the early climb. Then I hooked up with another pack of two or three guys, and we paced well down the steep back of Binny Mountain and through the swoopy section by the pond. I led them into the first aid station because I just felt great. And we powered up the road to Watetic, and I interspersed some power hiking with the running so as not to lose too much time on the shallow uphills on this uh, washed-out road. And then we pushed up and over Watetic and pulled into the turnaround just under two hours. And I said hi to my friends, filled my water bottles, and hit the return path with a bit of renewed vigor because I still felt great. And that quick turnaround must have surprised the guys I was with because I lost them and never saw them again. And now I was alone for the return flight. Uh, So I dug out my droid and switched on the music. I didn't bother with the headphones. I just let it play in the pack. So I could hear it in the background, the Grateful Dead, the Ska Punk, the Clash, serenading the people I passed with weak musical comfort. And I felt good, so I pushed. I pushed up Watetic, I pushed down the backside, I pushed down the road to the aid station, stretching out my stride on the shallow downhill, what was now a shallow downhill. The only problem I really had was that the Hoka Speed Goats I was wearing were really bashing on my abused toenails. The toenails were already insulted by the 100-miler, and now they were just slamming into the toe box of the the, uh, speed goats with each downhill foot plant, and it hurt. I mean, I love those shoes, but why can't they just give me a little more room in the toe box? It was getting warm, but I wasn't feeling bothered by it. I just made sure I kept up on my electrolytes and my water. I fell a couple of times... (laughs) Nothing bad, just a a roll in the trail to pick up some dirt. And I had one piece of detritus, that's how the English say it. I've had some comments on how I pronounce detritus. That's how the English say it, and they invented the language, well, parts of it. So I had one piece of detritus stuck to the end of my nose that I couldn't seem to wipe off. My hands were too sweaty, and they were covered with dirt, too. And it bugged me to have this little bit of stuff sitting right in the end of my nose in the line of my vision. And you don't want to be constantly absorbed with a piece of something stuck to the end of your nose when you're careening down a technical trail. (laughs) So I finally got that off. But I leaned into that steep push up Binny, past another runner, and I was collecting them slowly and relentlessly the whole trip back. Some just hit the wall. Some had cramps in the heat. A lot of people underestimate this race. They see it's 18 miles, and they think it's 18 miles. It's not. It runs like a 50K. But I had the energy, and I was moving well. 
So late in the race, my legs were strong, not rubbery at all. Typically with all the mountains, your legs get a little rubbery, especially in the quads. And later in the week when I recovered, I was sore, but I was good sore, sore in the hips, sore in the quads. You know, that told me that I had worked those mountains pretty well. And I was pulled into the final road up to the finish. I could see a runner up ahead and I was slowly gaining on him. And it was Paul, but I didn't quite catch him. Uh, We ran out of race. He beat me by 12 seconds and I ended up pulling in with a solid 402 finish which surprised me a bit because I thought I'd be well under four hours given how strong I felt, but I guess the heat must have slowed me a bit. I ended up coming in 26th overall, fourth of my age group of 13, and Paul said I was one of the few people, one or two people who ran a better time this year versus uh, last year in the rain because of the heat. But more than the finish time, I was super pleased with how good I felt. All those long miles over the summer seemed to have benefited me greatly. I had great energy the whole race. I had a strong close. It was one of those days when you felt like you raced, like you gave a good accounting of yourselves, a full measure, as they used to say. So let's see what I can do with this fitness now. And now for today's featured interview. Liz, before I ask you, uh, you know, to give me the 200 words, you have the distinct misfortune of being a person who knows me in the protein form as opposed to just in the virtual form. So, that's right. I mean, you knew me in the protein form before you knew me in the virtual form. So uh, that's an interesting dynamic for us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I heard that you uh, are doing some coaching and you're a uh, a reasonably enthusiastic uh, amateur endurance athlete in your own right. So I figured we could yes, have a, a conversation around that, see if we could turn over some rocks and learn some stuff. So, uh, awesome. so now why don't you give me the, the 200 words <laughs> on who you are and what you do. <laughs> so who am I? Well, now that I'm 51, that there's a lot of stuff in that basket. But mainly, I'm 51. I live in Massachusetts in the Boston area. I grew up outside of Cleveland, moved to Boston, I don't know, like 25 years ago after I met my husband, who's from here. So I have a husband. (laughs) I have two girls. One I just took to college for the first time yesterday and another daughter who, yeah, yeah, that was a big day. But it was good. It all went smoothly, except that it was so hot out and there's no air conditioning in the building. So that was a little tough, but we got through it. And then I have another daughter who started her freshman year of high school today. So I have two freshmen, one in high school, one in college. And I am an animal lover. I have two golden retrievers, Thor and Ginger, and they're actually siblings, but Thor is older. He's just from a different litter. And then I, we have three cats. And most people who follow me, and for those who don't know me, I'm actually a vegan athlete. I don't eat any animal products. However, having said that, um, one question I get a lot is, do I have to be vegan to work with you? And the answer is no, because we're all on our own journey. And this is my journey. However, if people end up asking me questions, I'm always happy to answer like how I became vegan. And I do get questions on that sometimes. Yep. That's me in a nutshell. I've been coaching for over two years now, but I say I've been officially coaching for two years, but I've been coaching a lot longer. I've been running a long time. I'm an avid reader and learner in this journey of mine, and people are always asking me questions, and I just decided that I love this so much. Why not become a coach? So I not only coach um, adult athletes and mainly women, but I also coach at my daughter's 
school, Parker, which is a charter school. I coach cross country, indoor track and outdoor track. I'm an assistant coach there, which is so much fun to work with the kids. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a learning experience coaching kids. You learn as much from them as they learn from you. Absolutely. And sometimes they even do things better than we do as adults. Like they're better at recovery. They're sometimes better at hydration. But then sometimes they're the opposite where some of them run too hard all the time. So it's definitely a balance. But they're so much fun because they're so energetic. I coach 7 through 12. So we get the range there. So What I always love, Liz, is watching a cross-country race for the school-age kids and watching how much they give. I mean, when they cross that finish line, they've given 100%, right? Just, oh. It's amazing to me to watch them come across the finish line and just be totally collapsing and throwing up and all this stuff, right? Because so, they really have no – they haven't found that, that sort of limiter switch yet that we have. Yes, absolutely. They definitely go all out. And there's so much learning that happens with them, especially if they're new to the cross-country sport. You'll have the kids that take off way too fast, and they learn early on, okay, that's not a good idea. But then you have the kids that just, they give it everything and they cross the finish line and they're like, I don't feel too good. And that's when you know that they gave it everything. Right. Yeah. So you said your clientele, you're typically working with uh, women. What are they looking for? Why do they come to you? What brings Um, them to you? It's funny because I think one of the things that brings them to me is every athlete I coach right now, and I coach virtually and local They have come to me because they follow me either on Instagram or Facebook, and I'm relatable to them. Not necessarily like in the same age, but they kind of get to see how I coach. They see that I do my own training. They see that I don't give my athletes anything to do that I haven't done myself. They see that I've failed. They see that I've succeeded. I think they see that I'm over 50 and the things that I'm doing, like, The fact that I did two 50Ks, one in April and one in June this year, I think says a lot. They just see that I work hard, but they also see me balanced with, I have my family, I have my dogs, and I'm good at recovery. They see I recover. They see that I take my easy run seriously as easy. I hope that, like, somehow I inspire them. Like, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. And I think they also like the one piece that I bring to the table is I either teach my athletes to meditate or if they've already been meditating, I add to it because mindset is such Mm. a big piece, especially the older you get. There's so many beliefs Mm -hmm. out there in society that say, oh, you're over 50. You can't do that. You can't run a hundred miles. You can't 50 miles. Why would you want to do that? Well, why not? You know, so I think they see uh, that. Yeah, I've been just amazed at what my body can do or figure out post 50. I mean, you don't have the speed, you don't have the recovery, but in terms of injury, in terms of just endurance, I'm just amazed at what my body can still do. I agree. I think that there's nothing wrong with, first of all, there's the element of taking care of yourself, you know, doing your best to get enough sleep, your fueling, hydration, and just putting in the time to train, but also taking time in between to do that recovery that you need to do. And I think that there's really no limit. I think the limits that we have are the ones we put on ourselves. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And I learned that earlier in my life, but I'm relearning it now. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, the assumptions yeah. of uh, people past 50. 
So, and the other thing you're probably bringing, because I know women and men too, is you're probably bringing some nutrition consulting to them as well. Yes. And I think that's another piece that brings these women to me is, is the nutrition piece. And especially as a woman, I've been through the spectrum of 30s, 40s, and now 50s. And I think women that follow me see what I'm doing and that I, I'm healthy. And what am I doing? What am I eating? A lot of people, I drink this green smoothie. I get a lot of comments on it. I always drink it after a run for recovery because it's so important what you're eating and putting in your, how you're fueling your body is going to enable you to do the things that you want to do and reach the goals that you want. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at, it doesn't matter whether you're vegan or not. If you look at an endurance athlete's life, just being out there and having to go through the workout and the recovery and the lifestyle sort of forces you to think about what the fuel is you're putting in your body. And it tends to converge on clean eating, whether there's animal Mm. protein in there or not. It still ends up being a very similar diet to a vegan diet. Yes just might oh, have yeah. some animal protein in it, right? So all the packaged yeah. foods and the, all of the chemical crap sort of goes away and you end up with smoothies and fruits and vegetables, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I always say just eat a rainbow of stuff and you're going to be good. Right. And it's about also like knowing the person that I'm working with and making sure that, that it meets their needs because everybody's just a little bit different. Like, for example, I take an iron supplement and I take B12 because I'm vegan, but some of my other athletes, they don't need to do that because they're not vegan, but maybe they're feeling tired. Well, let's talk about that. Why are you feeling tired? How's your eating been? Have you been fueling like you need to? Have you been getting enough sleep? So it's always making sure like the conversation is just an ongoing situation. Yeah, because body chemistry has a lot of impact on, I'm not body, but blood chemistry has a lot of impact on your energy levels. So you'll see that in and out and it's worse for women. Yeah. What do you see when you're talking to people, right? I always get the same like three to five to 10 questions, right? If you search the internet, what are the, the top three questions that you see that they're bringing to you? I would say the biggest one I get is, is around fueling and hydration. If you take training separate from race day, depending on what I'm running that day, how should I be fueling my body? How much hydration should I be having? Should I be having just plain water? Should I be adding electrolytes to it? And then I get a lot of questions around walking an athlete through, well, let's talk about what your current race day nutrition is in the days before. And then I kind of talk about how I approach it and what works for me. But the main thing I do is, is I make sure they practice it in training. I never have an athlete go to race day without having practice that nutrition and training. So I would say that's the biggest question. The second question is around meditation, because I talk about meditation. And actually, it's out there now, like a lot of people are talking about it. A lot of elite athletes are doing meditation and mindset training on how to get started. Start. I think it can be very overwhelming for people and anything, either to start training or you want to run your first marathon or starting to meditate. And I think the key with that is breaking it into baby steps for people. I think you just got to break it down and get them slowly started in it, which is how I do it, is just take one little step at a time. I would say the other thing is either around 
what kind of workouts, depending on the race they want to do or the goals they have, or recovery. Like, what's an easy run versus the other runs I'm doing between tempo and the workouts? Or how should I be recovering in between my runs? I would say, yeah, are the biggest questions I get. So your folks are doing uh, some real training in terms of speed work and tempo and long runs and that sort of thing, like training for a marathon or, or a triathlon or a trail race or something like that, right? I have a little bit of everybody, and I have a few athletes who are training for a marathon. Actually, a couple of them are going to be doing Chicago with me, which is kind of fun. And I have one athlete who is actually training for Bandera, which is in Texas in January. It's 100K. And then I I actually have a woman. She reached out to me in January because she wanted to get back into running after having kids. And we've been slowly working on getting her back into doing some of the distance stuff building up to half marathon and she's also the women I work with we're all busy we're all working or doing something and we're trying to fit it in and I'm helping them fit it into their schedule but I'm helping this woman also with some mindset stuff she's got going on about putting herself first instead of putting everybody else ahead of her running and kind of helping her with that as well. And that's harder for women as well, right? As you folks have been, in our culture anyhow, you folks have been programmed to have others come first. And in a sense, everybody is in the empathy sense, but more so culturally role-wise for women. That's a big one because you will get feedback from your own community where people say, how can you do that, right? How could you do that? How could you put yourself, how could you spend your money on this, right? That sort of thing. Absolutely. And what I'm noticing too is as, Now, I have a lot of moms around me who are now in this transition of either they've sent their last off to college or it's their first or their kids are older or maybe it's their last kid going off to kindergarten and now they have time where they didn't have it before and they didn't really put themselves first and have these interests like either running or whatever it is, hiking, biking, triathlon, just something. So now they're like, what do I do now? And I'm actually looking to start up fall group of women who are in transition who either want to start running just to get a group together as a community who are going through the same thing through this transition or maybe you're an empty nester now I'm even dealing with some of this like where my older daughter it's a big change and I find that it's it's better when you can do it yes absolutely and I have to say the thing that is making it easier on me is that a I have my own business that I'm running and I'm just the passion I have around running and the training and the stuff I do, I have something going on besides the fact that they have left and they're doing things on their own now. I find that that's an important piece that I think some women are missing during that time when your kids are growing up because of that feeling like they can't put themselves first. Right. And you're also losing a little bit of community. So you have to find a different support system. And you have to find a different purpose, right? Say that's the big transition there because those are probably the two most important things to your life are your purpose and your community. And you sort of lose that when the kids go off to college. It's tough. Yeah, Yeah, because now you're dealing with parents parents that are from all over the place. It's not like you're all in the same area again where your kids are going to the same school. It totally changes the game. So do you think this is something new? It feels new to me that men and women in this age group are doing something different where they used to sort of just retire and die. Now there's this sort of second life. And this seems like it's kind of feels like a new thing to me. Do you feel that way or am I getting that right or wrong? 
No, I totally agree with you on that because I find that there's still a big belief system in our society that as you get older, you start going downhill. You can't do all these things like we were talking about earlier. But I do feel like there's this whole new energy around people as we're getting older, men and women, where we have things going on. We have these goals that we want to pursue and we're healthier and we want to be healthier. And I totally agree with you on that, that it's, it's something new and big, actually. And not enough yeah, so is that... said about it. Not enough conversation is about it. I find that there's some face groups where in one is a master's group and there's just still this like, okay, I'm 40 and I'm, this is happening. Like we just, our mind, I'm a huge believer of our thoughts create a reality. And we're so programmed yeah. to have these thoughts. I'm 50. Okay, my knee's supposed to hurt. No, why is your knee hurting? Like, let's let's reprogram that. It, maybe it's not because you're 50. Maybe you're not moving enough. Yeah. Maybe it's something yeah. you're eating. No. You're not eating anti-inflammatory foods. So, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it's all in your mind. A lot of it's in your mind, anyhow. Yeah. So that's interesting. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's a venture capitalist, how uh, the same thing's going on with men and women in our in this age group, this over 50 age group, where they can't find jobs and they're mm. incredibly qualified mm. and want to work, but they can't find jobs because the society says, no, I can hire two 30-year-olds instead. But it's an interesting opportunity. I think this whole space is a giant opportunity. The world is looking at it as an opportunity to build nursing homes and invest in pharmaceutical companies. I would rather have us invest in the opportunity of a bunch of healthy uh, people with a purpose adding value. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I'm a huge believer that if you feel there's a door closed because you're 50, create another door. There's always a door for you to open. That's why I'm such a huge proponent of meditation. I think it's, meditation has changed my life over the last year since I ran Boston over a year ago. I've seen the changes it's made in me and my life and who I am and my belief system. And I seeing another big change that's happening in the world too. Yep. Yeah. Meditation is good. Well, I think running also leads people or endurance sports in general leads people to meditation. Yeah. It's like the diet thing. When you get to a point, yeah. there's a certain mindfulness that's required to run. Yes. And that then bleeds over into, okay, what if I were to just practice mindfulness without the running? Right. Right. There's definitely a, a correlation there, if not a yes. causation. So what, um, as we sort of move towards the exit here, yep. if you bumped into some 50-year-old who was leaving the unemployment office and overweight and depressed, and what would you give them for your pep talk? What do they need to know? Well, one thing I would do, at first I would say, is everybody's on their own journey, and it's all about being ready to hear the information. But one thing I truly believe in, it can be very overwhelming to someone, especially if they're in that situation where they are over 50, the unemployment office, they're not healthy, they're not feeling good. It's very hard for them to see that light at the end of the tunnel that things could be better. And it, isn't this the way that life is supposed to be? My thing would be, it's all about baby steps. And I believe change happens in the present moment. And it's about in that moment, what choice are you going to make next? So are you going to, because you're unemployed and you're feeling this way, what food are you going to reach for? So if you could change one little thing right in this moment to make a new choice, I would say, what would that choice look like to you? Maybe instead of grabbing the chips or, and there's nothing wrong with chips. I like a handful of chips here and there, but 
for someone who's unhealthy and that's all they're eating and maybe they're not eating vegetables, what's one vegetable you could put into your day? Maybe yeah. you could, at lunch, instead of eating that hamburger or getting that takeout, eat a salad. And there's so many good recipes now. Like I have so many cookbooks like that are like quinoa recovery salads and a new one I made this week that had like quinoa and just so many good things, carrots and this dressing out that was just like olive oil and balsamic vinegar. Like, and it's good for inflammation in the body because a lot of these people, there's a lot of inflammation in there that yep. needs to be flushed out, but you need to take little steps. So I would take them and yep. be like, okay, what's one small step we could take right now? And then I yep. would also add in some type of meditation, but I, it would be so simple. And I do this with some of my athletes. It's just hard to wrap their head around sitting for 10 minutes. I tell them when you wake up in the morning, and I got this from my own coaches that really helped me at the beginning. When you wake up in the morning, before you do anything, before you put your feet on the floor, before you get out of bed, lay there and take in, breathe in through your nose and say to yourself on the inside, I am, and then breathe out calm and just do that five times to start. And just try start with that each morning. Yeah. And then outside nope. of that, the next it. thing would be is just, and just those little changes, you wouldn't believe what would happen in the rest of their life. Little doors would start op be opening for them. Yeah. So when we go back, circle back to the women who have a hard time putting themselves first, what are the baby steps there? Yeah. So one of the first things I do is I challenge my athletes to ask themselves some, they need re to reflect a little bit. And one, the first thing I do is I say, why are you putting it? yourself last. What is there for you that's telling you that it's not okay for you to get that run and then the kids will be there later? And sometimes it's just saying to their husband, hey, can you make sure you can do this so I can get my run in? It's all about asking because women, we do as a group have trouble asking for help. We think we have to do it all ourselves. And if we're not doing it all ourselves, somehow we failed that day. So that's the first thing I would do is have them ask themselves a question and where could they ask for just a little bit of help so that they can get that run in. And then I consider like when you do things where you're not getting your run in, you're not putting yourself first, consider that a little bit of self-sabotage. Why are you self-sabotaging yourself where you don't run in the morning and you, you keep saying, I'm going to get to it, 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 get to it. And then it's 930 at night and you're thinking, I don't want to go down on the treadmill. Well, of course you don't want to go out on the treadmill, down on the treadmill. It's 930 at night. You need to go to sleep. So I ask them to reflect a little bit. And then I start with them the same thing before you get out of bed in the morning, do that little meditation. And then we take small steps. Can you get a 20 minute run in? Right. How about just Make 20 it minutes? Everybody's just, got 20. Or, or just start. Don't worry yeah. about finishing, just start. It's all about tying the shoes. I always tell people, I lay my clothes out. And even if I can't go running for, like right away, I get dressed to run so that I'm ready at any moment when I, like depending on what's going on in my day, because sometimes I can't get up and just go running. So I make it like, okay, when can I? So I'm already dressed and just tie your shoes, walk out the door and just go a half a mile and tell me you don't want to keep going. Yep. And think about how you feel when you're done. Think about how good you feel. So just remember that feeling as you're starting out. And every run, the first mile, sucks. it's that first mile of the warm. You just got to get warmed up. Once you're warmed up, you can go. Yep, that's good, good advice. So uh, as we uh, wrap it up here, how do people find you on so, the interweb? <laughs> the best way, I spend the, the majority of my time, my favorite is Instagram. 
at running on venti, V-E-N-T-I, like the coffee at um, Starbucks. I give a lot of information there. I post about my training and my athletes and nutrition and meditation, all of it. And then secondly, on Facebook, same thing, running on venti. And then I'm about to launch the next level of my website, but you can find me at my website and contact me through there at www.runningonventi.com. All right. Good for you. Thanks for giving me some time today. No, no problem, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Chris. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Empowerment. Today, I am going to talk about empowerment. I came to this topic via a couple routes. I tend to pay attention when a topic like this is whispering in my ear repeatedly from multiple directions, multiple interactions. The first time this topic of empowerment came up was in a Facebook post I read a couple weeks ago. This was in one of the Boston Marathon groups that I casually follow. A woman posted that she had signed up for a race and her good friend was essentially shaming her for spending so much money, time, and energy on running. And the subtext being that this woman was neglecting her role as a mom and a wife, etc. So the second time was in this chat with Liz here and realizing how deep these cultural norms go, even in our relatively unencumbered Western worldview, that palpable feeling of guilt that we, especially the women among us, feel when doing this thing for ourselves that somehow feels selfish. And I don't think empowerment is necessarily a woman-owned challenge. It's not a gender-specific thing per se, but it does tend to manifest stronger for women because of the cultural norms. And it becomes incredibly critical in cultures where women are strictly pigeonholed into artificially created societal roles. But I'm not going to go there because I am not qualified to. I am going to talk about the importance of empowerment and why it's not selfish, why empowering individuals is in fact a community enabler. So think about the etymology of the word empowerment. It is the state of being given power, of enabling power in an individual. It is bestowing power to someone to some end. It's not us taking power. It is us being given power. And I would argue that you can give power to yourself or do things that bring power to you. And power, well, that's a loaded word. Think of the negative reaction you get in your mind when you hear something like people in power or they exercise the power of the military or powerful men. But then say something like the power of positive thinking or the power of joy and you get a positive response. Power alone is neither negative nor positive. Power is simply capability. It is the ends to which that power is directed that make it good or bad. Mother Teresa had power. Gandhi had power. They did not seize that power from someone else. They accumulated that power from words and deeds and ideas. And what does sport and running have to do with this empowerment and the guilt we feel when we move into uh, an endurance sports lifestyle? So first, 
as we have seen time and time again through the course of the conversations we have had here over the last decade, running, endurance sports, and sports in general can be enabling and even transformative. It can be that force in people's lives. If you would ask me when I was a kid whether I ever thought I could run a qualifying marathon, I would have scoffed at the idea. But then I did it, and I wondered, what else am I capable of? That's the empowering nature of sport. It throws off the shackles of what we can't do and replaces them with the wings of possibility. And through sports, we are empowered. We are filled with the epiphany of our capabilities. Second, running in sport is a gateway drug (laughs) that changes our frame of reference in all other aspects of our life. It immediately draws our attention to the connection between focused effort, goal setting, and results. Sport connects the dots between all aspects of physical health in a life. It clearly highlights the connection between nutrition and performance and health. And other health aspects like cross-training, flexibility, sleep, rest, balance, all come into our scope of understanding through that empowerment. All these things empower us as better humans in the physical sense. And through our sport, we begin to tap into the mental aspects of empowerment. We begin to learn the necessary mindfulness of training and racing. We learn the mind-body connection that enables performance and empowers us. Third, As a result of this breaking out of our own limited frame of capabilities, we begin to break out of the frames of the roles that others have put us in. And this creates friction. And for me, maybe it's having my wife asking me why I waste so much time on training when I could be working on something useful. (laughs) For that lady on Facebook, it was, why are you spending your resources on this when your family needs you? And that's just the friction of you growing beyond the frame that they had put you in. That's not your problem. That's their problem, if it's a problem at all. They're going to have to adjust their frame of reference. And that's the point. That is the externalization of empowering ourselves. We empower those around us by breaking their frames of reference. So in this way, you see how... We are now beginning to change our families, our communities, and the world. By empowering ourselves, we empower others. By doing this thing that moves us outside the expected roles others have put us in, we are clearing space. We are making it okay for someone else to do it. So let's review the way sport, our sport, empowers By empowering ourselves with our athletic pursuits, we break our own assumptions of what our capabilities are. We break the disempowering assumptions and replace them with assumptions of capabilities. We are empowered to think and act differently. As a result of entering into this world of athletics, we are taught the impact of all aspects of our bodies on our physical health. We are empowered to live a healthy and direct lifestyle. As we continue this journey, we begin to understand the power of mindfulness and the mind-body connection. We are empowering our mental health. As all of these powerful forces coalesce in us, 
we become more capable of helping those around us. We create space for others to be empowered in a similar fashion. We change the assumptions of the herd, the community, and eventually the world. That's empowerment. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, thank you, my friends, for joining me for episode 4-394 of the Run Run Live podcast. Do you feel empowered, huh? Feel empowered now? Like I said, I'm training for Bay State now, putting in some road miles. I feel pretty good. One thing I had taken my eye off a bit over the summer was my nutrition. I was just putting in so many miles, it was one less thing I wanted to focus on. So I've been eating too much junk food and drinking too much beer. So I started a new project this week with the goal of getting to the starting line of Bay State under 170 pounds. I figure why waste this fitness I have by half-assing my preparation, right? And I'll leave you with a quick story about worms. <laughs> I didn't get much out of my garden this year. The varmints ate all my tomatoes. I didn't get any squash. I only got a couple cucumbers. But my kale was wonderful. My kale was great this year. For some reason, the cabbage worms, they never showed up. And I've been eating kale salads every day for a month. So this week, the worms have discovered my kale. But not the cabbage worms, which is good. Because the cabbage worms are all green, the same color as the plant. And that makes them pretty hard to find and clean off. So my wife, the horticulturalist, says that these worms are sod worms. And they're not all green. They're sort of brown and green with yellow and black stripes. And they aren't making a dent yet, and they're easier to clean off because you can see them. But as the weather cools off, they'll be less active. Hopefully I can still get my salads for a few more weeks, even if they have a bit of extra protein in them. And I also have a family, a beautiful family of caterpillars, chewing through my parsley. I got a big thing of parsley in a pot out by my front door. And uh, these are those big striped worms, like tomato worms almost, big ones, like three inches long. And they turn into these beautiful butterflies. Uh, the butterflies, I'm not sure if they're monarch butterflies, but they're like monarch butterflies, uh, except they're royal blue. They're this bright, bright blue with yellow spots. So I'm letting them eat the parsley. Seems like the right thing to do. You know, karma and all. And I was listening to some podcasts this week and some poets. They were talking about how movement is an act of meditation or prayer. And this is part of that empowerment theme where you make yourself a vessel and allow power to come through you. And whether that is the power of God or the power of the universe, you can decide. But you become a doorway. Think about the relationship between movement and empowerment spiritually. Moving through the stations of the cross or climbing the tower of a Buddhist monastery with all the friezes that you stop at or the steps of those stairways in China. Each step is inserting power or a prayer into the world. And think about that the next time you're out for a run or a jog or a walk. Imagine you are a conduit for power and are injecting it into the world each time your foot rings off the ground. Think about that. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought... 
that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. The race starts at 9 a.m., and we get there. There he is. He's bored. Hold on. <laughs> and the first time this topic of empowerment came up, I'm going to kill that dog. <laughs> 